0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi and welcome, everybody. Um, today, we are very lucky to be in conversation with Dr. Jasleen Raj about his new book, Plantation Crisis, Ruptures of Dalit Life in the Indian Tea belt just out with UCL Press. Hi, Jay, it's really great to have you here. Um, thank you for taking our time.
2: Thanks, thanks, Garima, thanks for having me and I'm very happy to be part of this uh, podcast series.
1: Um, so as is tradition with, uh, with uh, at NBN, can we start with a biographical question about your journey into anthropology um, and uh, anthropology of work and labor? Um, it'll just be interesting to get some sense of how you came into the discipline and crafted yourself as an ethnographer.
2: Sure, sure. Thanks. Um, I mean, I studied history and political science for my undergraduate degree. And uh, I was thinking of focusing more on political science and political economy for my master's and PhD. And uh, as I was preparing for joining graduate school in Toronto, uh, I met Bruce Kaffer in Kerala. Bruce Kaffer is a very well known anthropologist who was trained in Manchester School of Anthropology with. Uh, Glickman, uh, with Turner and Clyde Mitchell. And um, uh, Bruce was traveling across Kerala looking at possibilities to study religion and ritual. I think it was around 2007. And I met him in Kerala and I was so fascinated by his approach to anthropology. And and, and that is the moment when I uh, changed my mind um, from going to Toronto. And I went to um, University of Bergen in Norway to study with uh, Bruce Kaffer um, for my master's and PhD. Yeah.
1: Thanks. That's so great to hear of these accidental encounters with, uh, with great teachers who just changed the course of our um, study. Um, so let's start with the title of your book, Plantation Crisis, and your choice to tell the story of plantation capitalism from the vantage point of a crisis, which I found so analytically generative. And there's also something quite unique in the way in which you theorize um, cri- the situated crises, as you call them. Um, and uh, and your very important point that we can't think of crisis as an aberration, um, but as continuing the very sort of mm-hmm. basic logics of capitalism and extraction. Um, so maybe if we could just hear more about your decision to um not just empirically as was happening in the field but also analytically frame uh frame your manuscript um with 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 crisis and tell the story of capitalism from 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 its ruins or its um, unbecoming so to say
2: yeah i think that's a very important question and that's at the center of the core argument of the book and core concern of the book um i started uh, doing field work um, at a time when the plantations were um, going down um, until then um, the workers there were uh, Tamil Dalits, Tamil-speaking Dalits who, whose ancestors came to Kerala as part of indentured system and they were reproduced over generations uh, to be well, to, for the plantation, for, for being plantation laborers but uh, there were crises before as well but this was a major one because most of the plantations in the tea belt that I studied in Kerala, it made uh, particularly, were abandoned, and the workers were just left uh, for for, uh, for for as they were struggling to make a livelihood, but also uh, look for what is the possibility of having a dignified life in that crisis moment. So here, uh, crisis means many things. Of course, it's an economic crisis, but as you just mentioned, the crisis is very generative and it actually uh, trickle down to different dimensions and get into very intimate aspects of uh, the worker's life. So that's why uh, I come to that, what what I mean by different crisis at the end of the book, uh, what I call as social consequences of crisis um so in a way there is a discourse on the political economy of crisis for plantation how plantation as an economy the plantation economy how what are the transformation that's happening to plantation economy and its location within neoliberal capitalism and that's very much there structurally but what we often miss out is that the way we connect the workers we connect them in in their struggle for a livelihood in crisis moment but we don't you often miss the sort of social consequences of crisis which is the central anthropological concerns because anthropologists look at what are the everyday aspects of human life and for me in the plantation the crisis was a central trigger that has uh, infiltrated into all aspects and finally encompasses uh, the workers' entire life, and I connect it to ideas of alienation and categorical oppression. But uh, methodologically also, I keep crisis at the center uh, because I'm employing something called situational analysis uh, from the Manchester School of Anthropology, uh, which is a le- legacy for me through uh, my supervisor. So I keep crisis as a situated event. And I look at the crisis and try to expand um, the life and and, uh, expand and understand the life of the workers by starting from the crisis as an event, then connecting it uh, through different aspects of the worker's life. But here, crisis is not just an illustration of what is going on, largely, but crisis transforms everything um, that it touches in the plantations.
1: Thank you. Um, Just because you mentioned categorical oppression, I thought we could maybe spend some time uh, um, uh, on on that coinage, because I thought that was such a wonderful way to sort of grapple with the multiple injuries of caste. Um, because it's not just an intersectional analysis of how how caste operates. Um, but but you but but like you say, it captures this um, dual dynamic of one the ways in which caste gets employed for capital extraction, but also the ways in which it renders um the workers stigmatized. Um, so if you would like to maybe speak a little about uh, categorical oppression and how the categories of caste uh, are. Are employed for the purpose of oppression and exploitation. Um, uh, I, I, I think I think the, the the listeners will appreciate it.
2: Thank you, uh, Garema. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I thought about categorical oppression um, because it's something more than uh, intersectionality or um, conjugated oppression, from uh, as coined by Philippe Burgua. And I'm very much inspired by Felipe Burgos' uh, conjugated oppression. Uh, but also then I bring in um, categorical relationship uh, as a concept used by Ca- uh, Clyde Mitchell and developed by Clyde Mitchell. Um, and I and I try to look at how to think about the categories of identity. In a in a in a local setting and the way the workers are located within it, but going beyond its function within capitalism and in this case plantation capitalism. So the point um, that I'm trying to um, articulate here is that categorical oppression looks at the workers' situation from the workers' point of view as human beings, but going beyond. The, the employment of categories of identity by capitalism. Often the case is that when we think about conjugated oppression as a concept uh, through Felipe Burgo uh, of course, uh, Bourgoire talks about the ideological dimensions as well, but mostly it's linked to how capitalism employs categories of identity. And this is particularly uh, very explicit and evident in case of plantation capitalism, which is one of the earliest forms of modern capitalism. But then what happens in that uh, sort of approach is that we tend to reduce the worker, uh, the, the workers as human beings to workers. Um, so I try to expand on, um, you know, go, trying to go beyond conjugated oppression by looking at what is that, this employment of categories of identity, for example, here on caste and ethnicity by capitalism due to workers' life. So therefore, the workers' experience of the stigmatization and their oppression through the their location at the bottom of categorical relationship is actually more than what capitalism might be intending um, in, in terms of employing, employing these categories of identity. For, for exploitation. Um, so my approach is that when we study a local setting, we have to not only look at the industrial context, for example, in here, plantation, and what are the categories of identity employed and or, or, or articulated uh, or played out with, within the plantation setting, but also outside it. So in this case, uh, what we have is Tamil speaking Dalits, um, who are living in highlands and from working class backgrounds, but the way their cat their their categories of identity uh, are employed for by capitalism is also through how these categories of their, their, how these workers are located within the categorical relationship outside the plantation as well. So in this case, for example, how they are located within Kerala society. So for example, I. Uh, examine uh, a racial slur called pandi, by which, um, so generally it it meant for Tamils, but I make it very clear that it is actually meant for Tamil Dalits. So there are other terms uh, for middle-caste Tamils and uh, upper-caste Tamils. So this term pandi particularly refers to Tamil Dalits and the plantation workers are, forced to embody the uh, aspects of the racial slur of pandi so here then it's not just limited to the plantation context in terms of plantation capitalism but it has implications and also produced these categorical oppression also produced outside the plantations which are employed within the plantation setting
1: yeah yes thank you um and just taking off from here i wanted to um ask you a question about how you understand agency and resistance and i think very early on you make it quite clear your 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 tiredness or your ambivalence about the ways in which it is treated in a lot of anthropological scholarship um, and what you write about agency and resistance, how you are approaching it, not just clarifies your analytical position, but I think it also clarifies and asserts how you're coming at this project politically. Um, and I just wanted to hear a little bit more about um, um, about the point that you say that a lot of the workers were, um, I think the word you use is uh, impassive about your appreciation, quote unquote, for their you know everyday processes of life making or creatively grappling with uh, with with crisis and alienation um so if you would like to maybe speak a little about how you are understanding agency and your decision to focus on coercion exploitation crisis, um and to 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 really to really make a political point about how we should study capitalism um and why you thought that um Speaking about everyday life making, uh, it, you know, amidst capitalist ruins, as, as has been uh, famously studied, uh, may may not serve this purpose uh, so well.
2: Yeah, um, I'm very really happy you asked that question, and uh, yeah, I I, I try to explain in my my approach to agency and resistance in the early part of the book, but later i do not address it as a concept in the book but i i my approach and the way i explain things actually is connected to my own understanding of agency and and and, and resistance as uh, explained in the early part of the book um so for me the, as as you rightly uh, captured it the problem was how to talk about the creative aspects of uh, human beings in a in a crisis context, without actually um, translating it into concepts that could be quite misleading. Um, so I think, particularly, we may have it from radical political economy or certain aspect of Marxist thinking or leftist thinking, is that you know people do resist, and and this is one question I get: How come people don't resist, or do people resist? Um, so, my own response is that these uh, terms or concepts sometimes are not enough to capture what is going on locally in terms of how people make sense of their own creative actions. So um, here, of course, they are resisting uh, in, in different ways, with different possibilities, but their own uh, key concern is not about how do they resist, but how do they try to make or imagine life through that rage. Now, when I say imagining a life, uh, imagining their own alienated situation and trying to make sense of their alienated situation is a creative act. That is one thing. Second thing is uh, in terms of understanding resistance and agency as concepts, we tend to associate certain actions with having agency and certain actions with lack of agency. And sometimes we tend to say that, you know, everything, you know, everything is resistance, then what is so particular about resistance? So those questions are there.
0: Slash NBN
2: 50 to get 50% off. So, my point was that we have to not only look at actions in relation to these concepts, but more importantly, we have to look at actions on what is the meaning of agency and resistance in those contexts. So, to give you an example, I talk about what I call as hidden injuries of cost, um, by which I meant how. The workers, as they move to different parts of Tamil Nadu and Kerala, try to hide their caste identity and try to play with informations they have gathered already, or uh, or in in the new context in terms of categorical relationships. So, for example, what does certain caste identity mean in the in certain context? And they try to play with it, and they try to project themselves as someone someone else. Now this particular aspect of hiding caste is very central to understand caste oppression, caste dynamics, but also how people make, you know, how people resist caste oppression. And this is much more important than understanding, for example, aspects of coming out, um, for example, as a Dalit, because coming out has a particular kind of history, in terms of concept and it's linked to certain kind of social injustices and uh, human rights issue. And it's very much central to certain kind of socio-political movements. Now, that particular term might not be useful in understanding, for example, what's happening in the context of caste system and caste oppression, very much linked to capitalist exploitation in the plantation context. So what's happening here is you need to go through much more violence. You need to have much more courage in order to hide your caste identity. Because if, if someone find, find out your real caste identity, you are in deep trouble. You are in more trouble than in certain other contexts where coming out or or, or just revealing your Dalit identity might, might might be much more easier in terms of structural violence. So we have to give that sort of possibilities. But people, while trying to maneuver through the caste oppression and capitalist exploitation, also make sense of their life uh, as alienated life. And that's where the way workers talk about alienation is very central. So when they talk about alienation, means uh, it, it doesn't actually, we can't associate it to um, uh, lack of agency or lack of resisting. It is they, they resist the alienation through making sense of alienation and through articulating their alienation. So that was at the center of um, uh, how I approached uh, a- the questions of agency and resistance in the book with regard to what was going on on the plantation.
1: Yes, thank you. This is something that I was thinking about quite a lot while reading the book. Um, and also, just from your answer, um, I really like the phrasing that one should be it's it's not that there is agency or not, or resistance or not, but uh, where we place emphasis and how it may lead or mislead is is important. And I and I like how you write in the book that recognizing the workers' own recognition of their alienation is is where is from where you're theorizing um, their agency and absolutely, so- absolutely. Yeah. And it's throughout the book, it's it's we're looking at various attempts at life making through which this alienation is being understood. Um, uh, Yeah. So thank you very much for that. Um, And now maybe moving straight into the real meat of the book. Um, it was just fantastic this kind of longitudinal view that the book gives us because we start with oral history, so we also have a we also have a sense of how the plantation was remembered and the moral order around the plantation was remembered. pre-crisis um, quote unquote and then we move you know we move generationally we move in time we look at how disputes come up and how they are resolved or not uh, rumors and gossip that circulate so it's just maybe if you want to walk us through the book and the multiple layers of alienation e- economically materially in in intimate life kinship life social life gener- you know intergenerationally that the book uh, captures so in such a in such great detail and complexity um, so it's, it's a big question, but if you would like to walk us through through the multiple levels of alienation that the book charts, um, and just give us some sense of that.
2: Thank you, uh, Grima um, for, for just thinking about uh, the sort of significance of ethnography here, um, particularly also in connection with um, other other methods like oral history, for example. Um, so, yeah, this was also a choice on uh, how to actually lay out the stories and lay out the analytical possibilities in different stories, um, and, um, but, but also not be carried away by uh, theory or the certain theoretical uh, standpoints. And uh, this was a major struggle as I was writing the book, and also when I was trying to uh, publish it. Uh, because in many contexts, what happens is um, in this in the sort of contemporary anthropology, as anthropology is changing also, um, we, are, we are actually very much um, taken away uh, by theories. And and try to locate ourselves within many turns in anthropology. For example, what we have now is, for example, anthropology of good, moral anthropology. You know, linguistic turn in anthropology, ontological turn, and many things. So what happens then is um, anthropology loses its earlier focus on uh, keeping the ethnographic analyses uh, at the center of it. Um, rather now what we have is we try to bring stories from mostly from global south, then try to fit ourselves within certain fancy strands, in philosophy, um, anthropological turns, which means th- then these stories become just an examples for what we discuss in Euro American universities. Um, so one thing I tried to do is I tried to avoid that kind of uh, theoretical encompassment for my ethnography. So my central concern was that uh, this should be the, the ethnography should be at the center, not only the center of the book, that should be the book. And uh, this comes from uh, my my own PhD training with Bruce Kaffer, who used to tell me that you know, as an anthropologist, our commitment is to the people that we study, not to the sort of theoretical, ideological groupings that is there in the universities and that try to, you know, sort of pick a fight with uh, who doesn't agree with you on certain strands. And and by the way, the book is dedicated to Bruce uh, Carfer, and because it comes from him a lot in terms of the training and the methodology and his inspiration. Uh, so that was the sort of uh, basic thinking to keep the ethnography at the center.
1: Yeah. Um, and, sorry, just before yeah. you uh, before you go into your discussion of alienation, just on that, I wanted to say that it was so striking how much I was, when I was reading the book, I was thinking of what Alpa Shah has written about the radical commitment to come to come as close as one can ethnographically to the life of the other and understand it on their terms. Um, you know, to to try to present that life uh, and not get all caught up in uh, fancy theory making, um, which is you know fashionable at the time. And the book does that so well. And I think as I was reading the book, I I came so close to plantation life. And just thank you very much for 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 your writing. Thank you. And for that- um,
2: thanks for that is that is very really spot on. And 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 uh, yeah, Bruce used to um, tell me anthropology as an egalitarian discipline uh, in terms of, you know, because we tend not only think about the the people as the, uh, as very, as not only as someone who is, who are giving us stories, but uh, that we rely on their analysis and thinking, right? So in order to, in coming back to, uh, I mean, discussing alienation, but also you asked a question about how I I chat out in different chapters, different aspects of alienation. Um, so one thing I, I, I try to do here is to bring different aspects of alienation, so alienation as a holistic condition, rather than just uh, prioritizing, uh, so for example, material uh, exploitation as a center of alienation, as in uh, Marxist thinking, or um, you know, alienation as a phenomenological condition, as in, uh, you know existentialism, or to bring in, for example, uh, Franz Fanon. So for me, Marx and Fanon both are very central here to think about uh, bringing together the material and ideological aspects of alienation, because uh, I- when you do ethnography, it's very hard to actually uh, distinguish and deal. Uh, you know, and 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 to uh, look at uh, both. Material and ideological separately. And I, I think it's very impossible. So uh, I start with uh, plantation production. So, one aspect, uh, uh, the in one central aspect of the first chapter, pre crisis, is to talk about uh, political economy through moral economy. So, unlike, um, you know, in maybe in certain other literature where you talk about moral economy as something in opposition to. Political, economic concerns. So I try to look at how uh, moral aspects uh, and moral economic relationship develops within the plantation capitalism over time, and why I keep that moral economy at the central or moral relationship at the center of it. Because as plantation um, plantations were abandoned. Uh, the workers sense not only a crisis in terms of crisis of political economy, but also a crisis of a moral economy and a breach of moral relationship that existed, and also what I call as graded patronage. Um, it's not just one-to-one relationship uh, between workers and the employer, but different levels and the complex networker. Of patronage that existed within plantation, and that chapter um, is laid out in in the way it is laid out to give the intensity of the crisis um, of uh, in terms of what's happening to the uh, plantation workers, not only in terms of the economic condition but also existential condition. So I try to you know and 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 that connects to different dimensions of alienation, you know, alienation, of course, from on own work, but also you you don't have that sort of connection anymore within the plantation also. So we have uh, uh, anthropological literature on plantation, which, which looks at the connection between the, for example, the tea fields and the workers, the factories and the workers. And you are also, there is a suspension of that sort of connection also there, right? So Uh, Alienation is also here means alienation of a wageless life. Um, But then alienation of of, of being suspended from plantation production also connects to alienation produced through categorical oppression. And and different kinds of categorical uh, oppression and alienation produced through different categories of identity, which, of course, which feeds into each other, Right. Uh, then I connect that alienation with what is happening in connection with other situated event as in chapter 5 on on the dispute on uh, between Kerala and Tamil Nadu over the malalay dam and the, the work, how the workers are workers are caught up within that dispute and which actually accentuate their alienation uh, so there is a, uh, you know, you can keep many things at the center. So crisis at the center, suddenly also you can keep alienation at the center in, and try to make sense of how, for example, economic crisis and the crisis of relationship, as I talk in chapter six, mm-hmm. uh, fracturing of social relationships, kinship relations uh, on the plantation um, produces... Uh, different levels of alienation. So, what happens when you actually live through alienation for so long, alien as a sort of leading an alienated life? And I think it's very important to have alienation as a central idea here, because it's not like you know, alienation as in other contexts. It's not like saying that we are all alienated because we are all human beings and we don't, we, we are not in control of our life. Um, and people could say that it's it's all relative but if you would have done field work at the time I was doing field work you would have recognized the centrality of alienation in the life and the way they talk about it and also perhaps not only living through alienation but also just you know just trying to you know trying to think about and, and trying to make sense of alienation in the future also. So alienation, what's, you know, new kinds of alienation. So for example, the dispute, the dam dispute happens a uh, few years after that the crisis became really intense on the plantation. So that's something people don't expect, but that just come in their way and they just trying to maneuver through it. Uh, so one can look at, you know, alienation as as the ontological condition, as I would call it, as, as very much at the center. Yeah.
1: Thank you. And one of the really wonderful things I thought about this book was uh, that alienation is not just this highbrow concept of theory, but it is so ethnographically felt. I almost thought that the mood of the book was so eerie. You could it was so present, this sense, and even in even in the workers' own dialogue, it's heavy, you know, lead-heavy speech where they're speaking about this descent into a life that feels less human or non-human. So an existential angst, but also just the fraying of social relations and just this very sparse social, sparse and scattered social infrastructure around these workers whose identity, this kind of solid identity is constantly being... Um, uh, you know, is chipping away, um. So yes, that you capture that mood very well, and it's very present that this is not a concept that is being, you know, uh, stapled on to the worker's own speech, but it's very present there. Um. So yeah, it's it's, it's eerie. It has that sort of hollow sparseness, and I thought that was really wonderful. Um, Thank you.
2: True. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um. And I also had a question about the sight of. Sp- plantation itself both ethnographically and analytically and i had sort of two uh, maybe a little kind of critical questions to to push you a little one was that um, the, the 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 book looks at the plantation site as as a site of exception at one point it also says that there is a kind of social egalitarianism within the plantation and i just wanted to ask you sort of p- p- push you a little to 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 because I understand how um, the, the book is talking about how it is no longer a site of expect uh, of exception, and it's sort of rupturing and all kinds of the social life is uh, of of outside is uh, now completely corrupting and mudding uh, whatever this state of sep- exception may have once been. But I just wanted to um, uh, ask you to unpack that a little bit about how why you think of uh, the plantation as a bounded site cut off from the rest of the world Uh, of course in terms of how caste hierarchies are operating and being operationalized um, but also um, uh, as this very dominant institution the institution of plantation and the way in which it dictates social life Um, so just about that demarcation that you make between this bounded walled category of the plantation and the world outside and how much that really holds and i just wanted to understand that a little bit more
2: uh, that's that's a very important question. Thanks, uh, Garima. Um, I also, I mean, th- this is a big debate in uh, anthropology of plantation for so long, also, and also not only in anthropology but also in history, in in sociology. Uh, to what extent a plantation um, could be considered as an insulated institution, as a total institution? Uh, to borrow from Goffman. Um, and so I try to approach plantation as a total institution in a relative sense, okay? It's very much a relative. Now, why do we need to pay attention to that relativeness? Is because plantation is not like an ordinary village. And that's a very key point. The moment you say that, yeah, okay, certain aspects of plantation is very much like village structure, of course that is there. But what is the analytical purchase and where does it take us? And as you do more intense ethnography, you you look for, you also, you know, the, the, the differences are very much glaring at you, right? So only when we pay attention to the differences, uh, in terms of comparison, so comparison is not just about similarities, but but about these huge differences, and 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 that you recognize only through ethnography, only through very micro studies, and the significance of understanding that uh, relative ins- insulation of plantation is that then only you will recognize the intensity of what is going on on the in the plantation as the plantations. Uh, are in crisis and are abandoned. So, for example, I bring that in connection to caste uh, uh, in terms of the relative egalitarian possibilities on the plantation, which is an effect of plantation capitalism, where and it, it's an effect of a class order within which caste is located. Now, my point is not that caste system doesn't work on plantation; it very much works on plantation. And there are, of course, aspects of exploitation. But those aspects of oppression and exploitation is different from what is happening, for example, in Tamil villages. So the moment you say that uh, it is just like a village structure, then you have to also show that the kind of exploitation and intensity of caste oppression is very much similar on the plantation and, and Tamil villages where these workers came from. And definitely, that's not the case. And and that you can just, you know, understand it just by looking at newspapers, uh, on the um, on this intensity of caste violence, on the still existing very glaring practices of untouchability, and uh, uh, you know, and and denying entry to temples, for example, or the certain practice of this uh, dual tumbler system in uh, restaurants to give a very cliche. Very explicit, uh, glaring examples of untouchability in Tamil villages, and that's not the case in the plantation. And plantation has very other aspects. I mean, you know, other aspects of, of course, uh, practicing untouchability or differentiating oneself uh, to other. Uh, that's one point. The second point is that the majority of the workers were from were Dalits, were from Dalit communities, and that that is another aspect. Okay, so it's like a, it's like a. Huge uh, Dalit settlement. Okay, so you have to understand this as a huge Dalit settlement, not as a ordinary village. Where you have village means the uh, non-Dalit settlements. Then you have basti, Dalit bastis, right? So you have a very different spatial, social, and economic set uh, the speciality that and and system that is happening into the two different systems. and. Only when you recognize caste, uh, the the kind of caste system that existed within plantation as as something that was encompassed by class order and that provided some kind of dignity to Dalits and that protected Dalits from certain kinds of untouchability as practiced in Tamil villages, we would appreciate the intensity of caste discrimination as these workers are going back to the Tamil villages or Tamil uh, cities in Tamil Nadu. Uh, if you say that yeah, they were experiencing it uh, before also, then it actually uh, misjudge and undervalue and misrecognize uh, what is happening to them really. As for example, in in Tirupur or in Chennai or in Tamil villages uh, as I talk about. Um, so I think. It's it's very important to understand what is so unique, what is what is what is so particular about uh, the system, and in this case, plantation system is a relatively insulated system uh, compared to the the villages, and also particularly so in the case of tea plantations. Uh, for example, if you take the case of rubber plantation or some other plantations, or let's say even tea plantation inside another context. In terms of its geographical location, it might not be so insulated. But on the, in the case of these plantations located in western Guards, very much uh, away from the central metropolitan uh, cities or urban life, and this is very much uh, so the case uh, when, when uh, you know, in terms of uh, the insulated nature of plantation i think it has huge analytical purchase
1: yes thank you for explaining that and i had a second related question which was about the role of um nostalgia but also kind of um a kind of um a value in a strategic reconstruction of the plantation pre crisis in narrating its unraveling today so when people are evoking um this plantation as it existed before the crisis there in the midst of today um how much do you think it's also a place of a zone of politics where they're present where they're reconstructing the image and the functioning of the plantation in very particular ways so as to critique uh, their current situation. Do you think there is an element of that at play as well? Just sort of, you know, taking on your point of these relative constructions. So also the relative construction of the plantation of the past relative to today.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, that that aspect is very much there, right? I mean, um, people do it all the time and uh, they re-articulate, uh, retell and reconstruct the, the plantation story. But they are also very critical of, you know, they don't give us a rosy picture of what was happening before the crisis. They are critical of it, but also they try to, uh, I mean, creation of meaning within plantation through understanding different aspects of plantation, including its production relations, fields, factories, and relationships between different classes of workers, is, is very central to their life because they have lived there for generations. Now, that aspects are there very much in front of us. So for example, when certain plantations were abandoned, certain plantations were in operation, and there, certain plantations were only, the, the production were, was only partially suspended. So you have different kinds of uh, plantation system that coexist even in moments of in times of crisis. Okay, so that is there. Um, I do recognize that you know retelling a story might play um, in in term in terms of giving a little colorful picture of the past, and in in this case, it is not so much the case in terms of how people tell the story, but in terms of the uh, structural distinction between plantation system and uh, outside the plantation system, uh, because I'm very familiar with the plantation system even before the crisis also. Uh, And also there are huge literature available on the relative egalitarian aspects of plantation. So I'm trying to tell the, and, and, and I'm trying to articulate the relative egalitarian aspects of plantation not just through the stories that the workers tell me in terms of the difference between pre-crisis and the crisis moments, but also comparing it to studies elsewhere. So, for example, uh, Chandra Jaiwardhane's work on the Caribbean uh, islands is very central to understanding these uh, different aspects. Um, so even uh, anthropological studies in other plantation system have articulated Uh, these aspects very well.
1: Thank you very much. Um, I also wanted to um, um, bring some attention to the to the, the category of the figure of the trade union. so the the, the the book tells us the story of the workers and their changing lives but also present throughout is the trade union and the various ways in which um, they constitute a labor hierarchy and they get co-opted. Um, so I had a question about how where do we understand the place of trade unions in this in the labor politics that emerges from a plantation in crisis?
2: Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, and and that's uh, that's also another uh, central aspect, perhaps a little bit um, away from keeping the workers at the center, but uh, among other actors, uh, of course, trade union and trade union leadership is very central to understand plantation production. Um, so, the case of plantations in the place where I studied is that the trade unions are mainly run by and led by people who are not working on the plantation. So they are uh, outsiders and they are professional uh, trade unionist. Um, And uh, this aspect is very much uh, studied in labor history, for example, uh, how in, in different places, these outsiders becomes very central to union leadership uh, but i think i try to bring in much more critical aspects of not only corruption but directly participating in the production order so here the case is not that the unions are corrupt or union leadership is corrupt but the very design of plantation system is in such a way that the unions participate in the production relations and they facilitate production relations Uh, So, for example, union representatives are part of Plantation Labor Committee, PLC, uh, which uh, decide on the workers' wage. So, the unions do have a say in deciding workers' wage, and often the unions uh, rationalize the plantation production. And they explain to the workers, for example, if plantation ceases to exist, we can't. You know, you will lose employment, you won't have anything. So it's like they even in interviews with me, they would tell me like we need to have a wall to paint, as if plantation is the wall, and, and the centrality of plantation as a system for for the for making life possible for human life possible in the context. And I think that is a very problematic position for the trade union because they further rationalize this production, plantation production, but also rationalized proletarianization. So in my current work, in, in something that I'm working on, I try to bring in these aspects of uh, deproletarianization and how to think about deproletarianization. Is it possible to think about deproletarianization in the context of rationalizing proletarianization? Um, so in the in the context of the T-Belt that I studied, the union is, is very center for this this pushing this process of product and therefore also mediating resistance, And this is more than corruption. So this is not something like uh, an aberration that can be fixed um, uh, because they are very much at the center of it. And uh, uh, and bring back the question of, and you asked a question about the hierarchy that is uh, reproduced by the union. And, and then they explain it because they are mostly Malayalam speaking, middle caste or upper caste, uh, who who produces who uses the caste uh, hierarchy in 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 reproducing the hierarchy within the union but also for the plantation production
1: order thank you very much for giving such a picture of the book. Uh, and I just wanted to make a comment that, you know, throughout the book, there is um, such a commitment to capturing these multiple sort of conjugated crises, as you call them, the overlapping crises that are each crisis, you know, uh, exaggerating the next, uh, and sort of grim, very dismal um, uh, landscape of abandonment and alienation, the workers' own recognition of that alienation, the ethnographers' commitment to theoretically unpacking this alienation, but also simultaneously, we have such a good understanding of the institutional and non-institutional processes through which this crisis is naturalized and made invisible. And I love that you end the book on this note that we have to understand this crisis as a scandal. Um, And uh, the the book makes a very powerful case for that. Uh, So thank you very much. Um, you hinted a little at your current ongoing work, but uh, if I could ask you to share a little about where you're headed next and what is your current or future research work looking like um, and uh, that will come out of that.
2: Thank you, much And, um, yeah, I think uh, these different kinds of and uh, crises and conjugated crises and social consequences of crises are very central and i think it's very important to understand them beyond the economic logic of crisis so when i say economic logic you know crisis is often thought as economic crisis of course that's at the very center of everything but even in critical studies we take crisis for granted you know i mean that as if because within crisis is very much built in and 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 uh, and rationalized within capitalism and you know we we are not surprised by crisis but that precisely is a, is a problem uh, at one level in terms of the larger discourse on, on, on the political economy and the economics of crisis. But also, it is very important to think about uh, everyday uh, life possibilities at a very micro level, linking to these crises as a, as a discourse, but not just, of course, I'm not taking it as sort of a postmodern understanding a crisis as a discourse, but that's an important aspect, but to think about how to capture ethnographically, how these crisis, discourse of crisis generated. So that's what I do in the chapter on gossip and rumor, uh, because that's a way to capture how crisis is generated as a discourse. Uh, now coming to my uh, current project, as I just m- mentioned, um, I'm working on a piece which looks at possibilities of depoliticisation and imagination of counterplantation system by the plantation workers. So, if anyone is thinking about counterplantation imaginaries, it is the workers. And I try to look at what happens to uh, the workers when they come up something on counterplantation imaginaries. And uh, this is in continuation with what I worked earlier. Work uh, what I which is not really part of the book, uh, but on the Pemberley Urumai union strike that happened in Munar t belt, and I'm trying to write uh, a continuation of that. And I'm also working on a uh, book uh, on the relationship between state formation and, and Dalit life in in Kerala, uh, which is part of the New India Foundation fellowship. Uh, So, yeah, so these are the two projects at the moment, and I'm also uh, working a little bit on the violence against uh, Dalit Panchayat presidents in in Tamil Nadu, in the southern Tamil Nadu at the moment.
1: This sounds really fascinating. Uh, Thank you very much. And uh, and thank you again for taking our time to speak to us about your uh, excellent uh, book, Plantation Crisis. Um, it was really wonderful being in conversation with you.
2: Thank you. Uh, really, thank you so much, uh, Garima, for your interest in my, my work uh, and my book, particularly, and for for contacting me and, and for making this uh, podcast possible. Thank you.